Good morning. I was just thinking, the last time I was up here, apart from two weeks ago, was Genesis 49. Since then, we've, I've been in four continents. I have one more international trip, that's tonight. We head down to Florida and then on to Columbia. So be praying. We're going to be meeting with TMEI's leadership uh, teams from what we call Iberoamerica, so that covers Spanish-speaking uh, countries, so that's Spain and our school in Mexico and Honduras and then Argentina. And then we'll have several other schools that are going to be there. And then I'll be preaching in, um, in Bogota Wednesday night. So be praying for us. With that, turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Carrie, did I hear you correctly? Because I, you just made my day. Something about we're going to spend the next several weeks here. Did I get that right? Something, maybe several weeks in the book of Exodus. Okay, I thought you were giving me permission to... Do several weeks in Exodus 1. Okay, I stand corrected. That would have been great. I'm going to read from Exodus 1, but I'm going to do it in the Legacy Standard Bible because there's some language there that the translators brought out I thought would be really beneficial to us. You're going to see the, um, the words slave, the words slave labor several times. So I, I wanted to read it from there because it gives us the sense that what uh, what the people were going through, the Israelites were going through, was indeed harsh slave labor. So I wanted to get that language out. So if you haven't turned there already, turn to Exodus 1. Today we're looking at the genesis of Exodus, just because I wanted you to be confused. Uh, we're really looking at why or how did we get the book of Exodus? How does it carry over from the book of Genesis? And we're going we're gonna to see how that comes together. So this is the Genesis of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Ready? Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaacer, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, and all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And a new king arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people, the sons of Israel, are mightier, more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it be, uh, lest they multiply and it be in the event of war, that they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and go up from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labors. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. So the Egyptians brutally compelled the sons of Israel to slave labor. And they made their lives bitter with hard slave labor in mortar and in bricks and in all kinds of slave labor in the fields and in all their slave labor, which they brutally compelled them to do. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shifra, and the other one was named Puha. And he said, when you were helping the Hebrew women 
to give birth, and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Then the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can come to them. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it happened that because the midwives feared God, he made households for them. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born of you, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Well, that's the beginning of the book of Exodus, or is it? As Lance pointed out so effectively last week, our journey from Genesis to Exodus begins with some surprising grammar. Uh Uh-oh. I'm suddenly reminded of what my preaching professor said many years ago. Never start off a sermon with a word like grammar. You're going to lose the people. You see, you're supposed to start off with something exciting because we, we hear that in the first 30 seconds of a sermon that they're going to decide whether or not they're going to listen to you. And so I start with the word grammar. Well, for you grammarians, this is pretty exciting. I've captured your attention. You won't be the first to leave. So, Moses starts Exodus with a single Hebrew letter in Exodus 1.1. That letter in the Hebrew is known as a wa or a vav, depending on if you're Yiddish. Could be a vav. Actually, it's more than a letter. It's actually that little, it's a little line, like that. Very little, just just a scratch on a, on a paper, if you will. It's a conjunction, as Lance pointed out last week. Look again at verse 1. In the NASB and in the LSB, this conjunction appears as the word now. It can also be translated and or then, which you see it oftentimes appear in our language. Uh, It could be also, something like that, or so. Well, since I've started with the word grammar, let me see if I can incorporate some help with others who might be interested in this sermon now that we can move forward. Picture it this way. You've, you, uh, you can't find a mechanic to pick your, fix your pickup truck. Now I've piqued your interest, I know. <laughs> can't find a mechanic to fix your pickup truck, and there's a problem because you told your wife that you would finish the landscaping on your backyard because you're Dear precious princess daughter's wedding is coming up in two months. Okay, good. I've got grammar. I've got pickup trucks. I've got husbands and wives and daughters and princesses and, and, and all that. So hopefully I've captured your attention. So you figure out there's a problem and you have to fix it. So you take an Uber, because you don't have a pickup truck, to the local Ford dealership. Chevy if it's a Chevy fan or Dodge if you're a Dodge fan. But like all the other dealers in town, they're out of pickup trucks, right? Why is that? Supply chain issues, of course, due to COVID as we're used to. So you order a brand new pickup truck and the dealer has great news for you. It's going to arrive within a month. A month? Really? 
Anticipating the delivery of your F-150, you schedule a vacation 30 days out so you can finish that landscaping job for the princess's wedding, of course. A month goes by, and you Uber back to the dealership because you just can't wait to see that brand new landscaping limo roll off the back end of that massive semi-truck. The guys are getting excited about this now. The salesman says, hey, I got good news and bad news. You're going to love this. Good news is that your truck is safe on a boxcar, and it's on its way to South Lake, Texas. (laughs) What's the bad news, you would say? Well, the boxcar isn't attached to the locomotive because it doesn't have that coupling device on it. Where am I going with this? That coupling device is extremely critical because without it, the boxcar can't move, you can't get your Ford F-150, your daughter's wedding is going to be ruined, and you're pretty sure that there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because there's no coupler on that boxcar. All right, so now I've got the train fans included here. Good. Well, here's the good news. The book of Exodus has a fully functional coupler linked to the book of Genesis, you see. Without that wah conjunction that we talked about, we would have no context for understanding how Exodus fits into Genesis and the rest of the Bible. Uh, Verse 1, the conjunction now is critical to Exodus, and it means that our sovereign Lord is the same loving Lord, our God, from Genesis to Exodus, and he will fulfill his promises, period. I'm not going to say full stop because that's overused. Practically speaking, for you, it means, and this is on your notes, you must cling to God's unrelenting love so that as you prepare for hardship, you're equipped to courageously serve him no matter the danger, no matter the cost, and no matter the consequences. That's what we're going to learn from the book of Exodus chapter 1. So here's what I want you to do today. It's part of your outline. Be encouraged by the three scenes of God's provision of the Genesis 3.15 seed. And if you were a part of our Genesis study for the last couple of years, that would make sense to you. So if it doesn't make sense to you, it will by the end of today. So the outline as it reads here, uh, God's prelude to the Genesis 3.15 seed. And we're going to see that in Exodus 1, verses 1 through 6, and, of course, in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, Number two, God frustrated the persecution of the Genesis 3.15 seed. We'll see that in verses 7 through 14. And then third, God preserved the Genesis 3.15 seed in verses 15 through 22. So, God's prelude to the Genesis 3.15 seed, and to do that, we're going to head over to Genesis. You see, Moses wants us to see that the family ties of Exodus 1-1 are linked to the same family way back in Genesis 1, all the way back to the beginning. So to explore the pathway from the Genesis of the Exodus, let's start back in Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verses 27 and 28 just to get all this in context. Why is Exodus so important? Well, it begins all the way back here Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Note his proper use of pronouns, if you will. 
Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God's first message to man was his job description, what he would be doing for work. And it comes in the form of four positively charged commandments about what man must do very quickly. Be fruitful and multiply. He is to fill the earth. He is to subdue the earth. And he is to rule over every living creature that crawls or moves on the earth. Now, turn down to or turn over to chapter 2 because I want to read verse 15 through 17 because there's more. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day of it you will, what? Surely die. That's right. You will surely die. This is the first negative commandment. The the negative commandment is you must not disobey God. That's that's how it is. So so how'd they do? You guys know the story. Let's go to chapter 3. Let's read about how they did, and then we'll keep moving forward on our Genesis of the Exodus. So chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, you know who that is, boo, Satan, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the women, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will what? Oh, she misquoted God. She said, you will die. God said, you will surely die. Well, the serpent, verse 4 The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, liar, she should have said. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that that the tree was good for for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Well, God banished them from the garden, didn't he? But he still had to carry out, that's Adam and Eve, they still had to carry out those first four commandments through much turmoil, through much pain. For the woman, for the women, they will have pain and childbearing, and they will desire to dominate their husbands. For men, their ability to feed their families will also be painful and difficult to the extreme. Everything seemed hopeless for our first parents. But look at Genesis 3.15, which is where we're introduced to the Genesis 3.15 seed, that promise of salvation, that promise of the Messiah, that promise of the Christ that we've heard so much about through Pastor Tom, through our study that we just ended in 1 John. 
Verse 15, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her seed, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So in Genesis 3.15, God promised our first parents the hope of salvation, that there would come through Eve's seed or her descendants about 4,000 years later, around 3 or 4 B.C., and in, first, in the Gospel of John, chapter 114, this seed became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God planned for the Genesis 3.15 seed to come through, as we found in those chapters, to come through wicked people whose every intent of their thoughts, of their hearts, was only evil continually, Genesis 6.5. Despite Genesis 8.21, man's evil heart, God kept his promise. He raised up a Savior to crush the serpent's head. And out of that setting, God chose a pagan about nine generations removed from his ancestors. You would know him as Noah and Shem. God renamed him Abraham. Abraham carried the Genesis 3.15 seed, and God sent him on an exodus from his own pagan lands to what we would say now as modern-day Israel, or the promised land, promised by God himself. From Abraham, God made a great nation to be a blessing to every single ethnicity on the planet. Those that bless them, that's Israel, will be blessed by God, and those that curse Abraham's nation would be cursed by God. It's a promise he gave them in Genesis chapter 12. But in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, God disclosed the genesis of the exodus to Abraham. Here's what, he, here's what he said. We're going to come back and visit this again this morning. I'll just read the text. He says this to Abraham, Know for certain that your seed, your, your descendants, will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and will be mistreated for 400 years but I will judge the nation to whom they are enslaved, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. What a great promise. That's a long way away from Abraham in time. From Abraham and Sarah would come Isaac, the carrier of the Genesis 3.15 seed, and from Isaac the seed would pass through Jacob, God blessed Jacob like Abraham and Isaac, and God committed that from him a great nation would arise. And in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 14, God told Jacob, I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and I will give it, meaning the land, to you. And to who else? Your descendants. Through your descendants shall all the families, all the ethnicities of the earth be blessed. And in Genesis 49, we read Jacob, a.k.a. also known as Israel. Anyway, we read Israel's dying words to his son. Only through Judah, only through Judah will come the Genesis 3.15 seed 
to travel 1,900 years to Jesus, the Messiah? Are you getting the understanding, the genesis of the Exodus as we roll towards that book? Back in Genesis 49 and in Revelation 5, we found that we must worship Jesus, the worthy lion from the tribe of Judah, because he alone delivers us from the evil intentions of our hearts. So, this first scene in Exodus 1 is the genesis of the Exodus, reminding you and me that God is trustworthy because the Genesis 3.15 seed rescues believers from God's wrath. Be encouraged then by the second scene of God's protection of the Genesis 3.15 seed. That's our second point. God frustrated the persecution of the Genesis 3.15 seed in, in, in verses 7 through 14, back in Exodus 1. Well, we know from verse 5 that 70 direct descendants from Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, entered Egypt at Joseph's invitation. But verse 7, consistent with God's repeated promises, those descendants took God's Genesis 128 mandate for husbands and wives very seriously because we see here in the text, Exodus 1-7, notice the five verbs. There we go back to grammar. It's important. The five verbs that stick out to show us their obedience. They were fruitful. They increased they multiplied and became exceedingly mighty and so that they filled the land. Those 70 direct descendants of Jacob's family exploded into a nation, a new nation. Anybody have John MacArthur's study Bible handy? There's a few of you. If you, if you look at verse 7, the note on verse 7, I'm going to read it for those of us who don't have it in front of us. Here's what he says about verse 7. The growth of the nation, and he cross-references Exodus 12, 37, was phenomenal. It grew from 70 men to 603,000 males, 20 years and age of 20 years and older, thus allowing for a total population of about 2 million people. Numbers 1, 46, departing from Egypt. The seed of Abraham was, so, was no longer an extended family, but a nation. The promise that the descendants would be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 35, 11, and 12, has indeed been fulfilled in Egypt. And this is where we find ourselves in this text. You see, God is the hero because he's the one that caused the growth of this nation just like he said he would do. He took them there, and they're multiplying, and they're taking over the land. Remember that Abraham's seed, his descendants in Genesis 15, 30, 13, excuse me, would be strangers in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved for 400 years, and then they would exit that land. Well, in verse 8, verse 8 continues the genesis of the exodus let me just read it again. We read these words. And a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Moses tells us that a new king arose over Egypt. Most conservative commentators that I read on this 
um, indicate that the word arose suggests a foreign invasion of Egypt. Likely, they say it's the Hyksos. If you were to go back and look at the Hyksos, it was a foreign uh, people who dominated Egypt for about 300 years. And whether in this text it was a Hyksos king or someone else, as verse 8 declares, he didn't know Joseph, which means he had no idea of how God used Joseph to be the savior of Egypt from those seven years of famine. I can't think of a better commentary on what's happening here than Acts chapter 7. Join me in Acts chapter 7 as we develop this a little more. I want to give you another angle of the testimony of what's happening here. Acts chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 17 in a moment. Stephen's account of Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 sharpens our focus on this particular new king. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise was drawing near, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. It's the same testimony we've been hearing all along. Verse 18, until a new king. Is that what your text says? No, it's another king. Stephen says, until another king arose over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. You see, Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clarifies the kind of new king that arose over Egypt. Look at that word another one more time in Acts 17, 18. There's two original Greek words for the word another, two of them. One of them is alas, and the other is heteros. Alas means another of the same kind. In other words, another of the same kind of king arose, or the other one is heteros, which means another of a different kind of king. Stephen used the word heteros, heteros, to designate that a king of a different kind arose over Egypt not the kind of king to which they were accustomed. Stephen used that word hetros. This different king is still a king in the same way that Joseph's pharaoh was a king, but he was different, a different kind of king. He was a foreigner who didn't know Egyptian history as it related to Joseph. Since in verse 9, this foreign king didn't know Joseph, then he didn't know more tragically, Yahweh either. This king needed to convince his own people to fear the Jews. So in verse 9, he showed them two lines of evidence to persuade his own people to agree with him. Do you see those two lines? Here they are for clarity. Number one, first, the people of the sons of Israel were more populous than their own people. He says, hey, they have more people than we have. Second, that Israel was mightier than they. The king's word for people is well-chosen. Many times that word is translated nation throughout the Hebrew Bible. He, He sees them as a nation, not just as a clan of people. By now, they're pretty close to two million, you see. 
from the king's perspective, the quantity of Israel's descendants was far greater than his own people who conquered Egypt. That's a problem. That's a, that's a big problem for the king and for his people. You see, the king must convince his own people that the nation of Israel is an existential threat to his own nation and to their own national sovereignty. And so he needs to recruit the citizens to get behind his plan. So in verse 10, the king summons his people and instructs them to join with him. You see the words there, dealing wisely with Israel. Whatever plan this new king has in mind, he wants to gain national support from the people. He wants his people to embrace his policies as their own strategy. Thus, they would be complicit along with the king with the tragic deeds that they perform on God's people. It's not just the king who's at fault or to blame or who's guilty. It's the nation of, Is, of, of Egypt that are complicit with his demands or his reasoning or his wisdom or lack thereof. That's the reason in verse 10 the king says, let us, you see the pronoun there, let us deal wisely with them. Well, the word wisely requires a well-thought-out strategy or strategies. It requires uh, hard-thinking plans designed to do two things in the text. Number one, to prevent God, we would laugh, to prevent God from proliferating the nation of Israel. That's silly. He didn't read Genesis 1. He didn't read Genesis 15. Number two, he wanted to stop God from taking his people out of Egypt. So the king, this new pharaoh, Wanting his people to attack Israel fuels their fear with this or else statement. You're familiar with an or else statement? The king's or else threat, it boils down to his people agreeing that if they don't control Israel's population, then Israel will annihilate them in a war. So he's ginning up the people to get behind him because he can't do it all by himself. There's a commentary, well-written commentary, a famous commentary that's written on what we're looking at right now, and it's actually found in Psalm 105. Would you turn there with me, Psalm 105? It's here that the psalmist sharpens our focus on Exodus 1. Uh, Could we say the Exodus 1 reality? Follow along as I read from verses 24 and 25. Commenting on what happened, he says this, And he caused his people, that's God, caused his people to be very fruitful. And he caused them to be stronger than their adversaries. This is the same testimony that Pharaoh was giving. Verse 25. Let me just read the the last part of that verse 24 again so it makes sense. And he caused them to be stronger than their adversaries. And in verse 24, and he turned their heart. Who's the there? The adversaries. He turned the adversaries' heart to hate his people to deal craftily with his slaves. 
So in Exodus 111 and Psalm 105, with their fears stoked up and boiling over and in lockstep with Yahweh's purposes, they, the king's people, appoint taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard slave labor. The Egyptian national passion compelled them to hire slave masters whose primary job description was to afflict and to physically abuse and to subjugate and to humiliate Israel. The king's goal was their delight. And they wanted to fulfill, they wanted to please the king, they wanted to fulfill his plan crush the spirit of Israel through forced labor and beatings like those Moses witnessed, as we'll see next week in Exodus 2.11, so that Israel's powerful strength would be reduced to mental collapse and complete surrender to Pharaoh's wishes. You may recall that Jacob, also known as Israel, on his deathbed, prophesied over his son, Isaacer. Isaacer was mentioned already in chapter 1. He prophesied over his son Isaacer using the same language as in Exodus 1.11. In Genesis 49.15, Jacob's last words, his dying breath to his son Isaacer, are is that when he, quote, saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. And so here we are. Isaac's apathy, excuse me, Isaacer's apathy and his laziness brought taskmasters, masters to drive him into forced slavery along with the rest of them. This fulfilled prophecy is the genesis of the Exodus. And in verse 12, God ensures that Egypt's foolish strategy is a colossal failure. It's not going to work. You see, the slave masters had one job, one job. They were to reduce Israel's population through severe hardship and just downright nasty torture. If the slave masters, the slave drivers, the taskmasters had employee performance reviews, their first category would have read something like this, affliction and reduction. Excuse me, affliction and suffering. It would have said something like meets expectations. They, uh, they've, they've gone a little bit beyond, but uh, they, they've met the expectation, but they haven't gone beyond that. The second job requirement would have read something like population deduct, reduction, fails to achieve expectations. The population was not reducing. The whole idea was to reduce the population so that in the event of war, they wouldn't have more people than the Egyptians. So verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more Israel multiplied and spread out. Their women were having babies like there's no tomorrow, and that really frosted Pharaoh and his people. Pharaoh's self-assumed shrewd wisdom that we read about was no match for God's sovereignty. It never is. For it is written, says God, 1 Corinthians 1.19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I'll just set aside. 
The king convinced the people that Israel's population explosion was an existential threat to their national security, and yet everything they do brings a complete and opposite outcome. (laughs) Shrewd wisdom, Pharaoh, really? God told Abraham that he would make him a great nation and bless him, nothing, not even the most powerful king on earth or his loyalist can disrupt God's sovereignty. Would you kindly remember that when you're struggling through the heartaches of life? Remember that God is in control. What were the consequences of Egypt's foolishness, verse 12? They were in dread of the sons of Israel. That word dread there is used often cases, dread in the fear of war, imminent war. This reminds us of Psalm 2, where God mocks the leaders of the earth. He sits in the heavens and he laughs at them and terrifies them with the Genesis 3.15 seed, his anointed Messiah, his king. Verse 12. Their dread of the sons of Israel didn't leave them helplessly cowering in some corner or in some gully or in some field or valley. No, not at all. Their fear of impending war made them even more resolute in verse 13. You see, they doubled down on Pharaoh's plan, their own plan, and they multiplied their violent beatings and compelled the sons of Israel into rigorous slave labor. In English, we use adjectives and adverbs to describe nouns and verbs. Remember that repetition of of Hebrew words intensifies their meaning. So, in verses 13 and 14 in the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, the repeated words brutally compelled twice describe the intensity of the violence that Pharaoh and his complicit people brought against God's people. The LSB again in those same verses uses the word slave labor no less than four times to magnify the severity of their torment. This is intense. What these people went through is incredible. I can't imagine going through what they went through. And perhaps you're like most people, me included, and you want to know why God's people suffer under such severe persecution. I don't know how I better to answer that than to revisit what we've already looked at, Genesis 15. Turn to Genesis 15 again. If Abraham could have visited 600 years later to the people in our text of Exodus 1, these descendants of his, what Bible verse do you think he would have used to encourage them? Genesis 15, 13, and 14 is the genesis of the Exodus. This is what he may have quoted or may, may have, would have wanted to quote to his Distant, afflicted relatives. I'll read it again. Then God said to Abraham, 
Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved, do you see it there, and mistreated for how long? Four hundred years. Ah, but verse 14, but I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Paul encouraged the New Testament saints with these words, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I can't imagine that any of us will suffer the pain that our Savior suffered on the cross, and yet he was the only innocent one that ever lived. In Revelation 2.11, Jesus told the persecuted and the poverty-stricken Christians at the church of Smyrna that he who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. Though your suffering and affliction may not rise to the severity of those in Exodus chapter 1 or or even Revelation chapter 2, they are nevertheless real and difficult to endure. Your only hope is Jesus. God's Genesis 3.15 seed promised so long ago. The author and the finisher of your faith who will never leave you and he will never forsake you. We can have confidence as we go through trials and tribulation and suffering. So the first scene in the Exodus, Exodus 1, reminds you that God is trustworthy, is he not? And the second scene of Exodus 1 demonstrates that God is faithful even while his people endure suffering and persecution. But be encouraged by the third scene, that is the preservation, the preservation of that Genesis 3.15 seed. Pharaoh thought he was wise. He assumed that his brilliant holocaust, his plan to reduce Israel's population would work. His direct reports are also miserable failures, scoring a big fat zero on their employee performance reviews. So in verses 15 through 22, he tells the Hebrew midwives and all the rest of his people to perform post-birth abortion infanticide, to murder every Hebrew baby boy as soon as they're born. Two women I want to meet someday, midwives, Shifra and Puha, were probably administrators over many midwives helping Hebrew mothers during their labor and delivery process. In verse 16, the king's instructions to the midwives are clear. If it's a baby boy, then you shall kill him. Not it, him. The form of the Hebrew verb for death requires something far more than just death. It requires that we translate it execution. The king expects the midwives to commit infanticide. Pharaoh executed the boys because they would have contributed to an army that may defeat his own people, and he can't allow that to happen. Well, 
There's an application of the Genesis 12, 3 promise that will be utilized. You see, the, the king cursed Israel. So God will curse the king. That's a promise. In verse 17, whether knowingly or unknowingly, these Egyptian midwives' refusal to shed innocent blood resulted in God's blessing on them. We see in, uh, we see in Genesis 12, 3, they blessed Israel, so God blessed them. That was a promise. So, in verses 18 and 19, God blessed Israel by multiplying and making them mighty even in such severe, harsh situations. But he also, you see it in the text there, he also blessed the midwives because they feared God. So he established households for them too. God grew their families as an answer or as a blessing to their obedience. Verses 18 and 19 require some clarity. There's been much spilled ink on this, a suggestion that these midwives uh, lied to Pharaoh. So many people wrongly accuse the midwives of lying to the king, saying that the Hebrew women are vigorous. This is their testimony. The Hebrew women are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. This is a testimony of fact. These women are telling the truth. What the midwives said is true. God is the one who causes people to be born, that he used these vigorous women to preserve the Genesis 3.15 seed is perfectly understandable. Remember, God gets the credit, not the women. God used these women for his own purposes. Remember, God told Jacob, also known as Israel, in Genesis 46.3, he says, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. That's God's plan, and nothing, not even a foolish king and not his loyal subjects, nor you or I can take away God's love. Romans 8, 31 through 39. And so at this point, we, we really come to an end from where we started. The genesis of the exodus means that you must cling to God's unrelenting love so that as you prepare for hardship, oh, we all know it's coming, you're equipped to courageously serve him no matter the danger, no matter the cost, no matter the consequences. I'm going to prove it to you with one other text. One other text. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I just want you to listen as I read Paul's testimony of our faithful, loving God and what it means for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul writes these words, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? I wonder if the Egyptians knew that, or the Israelites knew that. Verse 32. 
He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction, you might say slavery or, if, or, or, or turmoil, as Paul writes here, or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. Exodus 1. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor, nor rulers, Pharaoh, nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in who? Thank you, Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, it's to you we give thanks that you gave us the book of Exodus. How else would we know to follow the Genesis 3.15 seed all the way through the beginning of this wonderful book, the book of Exodus, where we're going to watch you in miraculous ways preserve your seed and your people and take them on a journey fraught with fears, disappointments, anger over you, and yet, Lord, you never departed from your love for them, nor do you depart your love from us. So we know that during times of affliction, we know during times of disappointment and fear that you will never, ever leave us. So for that, we take confidence in who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. On the bottom of your notes, you have some questions to discuss with one another for a few minutes. Enjoy your time together. <laughs>